Hello, and welcome to the Impact Podcast. I'm your host, John Pryor. There's been a lot of conversation about the importance of responsible AI. Broadly, this idea that AI should be free from bias and can maybe impact people and society for the better. There are a lot of pillars that make up this idea of responsible AI. And the one we're excited to dive into today is explainable AI. Explainability provides insights into how you train your data, how it's performing. So if something goes wrong, you know exactly where to start looking for a cause and how to create a solution. This transparency means you're not only preventing performance issues, you're avoiding potential negative publicity, maybe even fines. This is something Fiddler AI, our guest for today, is enabling for companies. Based in Palo Alto, Fiddler's platform promises to provide a unified environment that has a common language, centralized controls with actionable insights to operationalize ML and AI with trust. They also call themselves a pioneer in enterprise model performance management. Building trust in AI through transparency is what they're all about. And we asked Fiddler's CEO, Krishna Gade, to explain what that means from a technical perspective. Spoiler, MLOps is a huge part of it. Here's Krishna to tell us more. I'm Krishna. I'm the founder CEO of Fiddler.ai. Uh, we're a startup in the Bay Area, you know, trying to build trust with AI. We've built a product category around model performance monitoring or model performance management that helps you know, AI and machine learning teams to understand how their models are being built so that they can build trustworthy AI for their organization. Previously, I used to work at Facebook working on similar things for Newsfeed, which is the core product of Facebook, where we worked on tools that explained how Newsfeed algorithms worked for both technical and non-technical folks. And that's how I got into this area. And that's how I started Fiddler. So I understand that when you get more data, you have the ability to make a model smarter. But at the same time, models can change. So talk to me about the balance between data and then models themselves, please. Yeah, that's a great question. See, like what is an AI model at the end of the day, right? Essentially, it's a pattern recognition system that is looking for patterns within the data and coding them into an artifact, which is called a model that can then be used to predict the future. So for example, let's say I have a bunch of historical data around good loans and the bad loans that I'm approving. Let's say I'm a bank and I know all the bunch of different characteristics about my loan applicants, their salary, their debt, and uh, what's their FICO score and whatnot. All of these variables will then go into this model training process where the model learns patterns which are then encoded in this sort of uh, artifacts like neural networks or decision trees, which then can be used to predict the risk of a new loan applicant when they come and apply a loan uh, in the bank. So at the end of the day, the machine learning model or an AI model is highly dependent on the training data that it was used, right? So the higher the quality of the training data, the higher the quality of the model is going to be. Now, therein lies the problem as well. Now, if your data starts changing, then your model's accuracy may not be how it was trained. So let's say I train my model today and I deploy it to production and it's running and predicting credit risk scores for my customers. You know, a few months later, 
let's say things changed in the market, maybe Fed increased interest rates or decreased them, or there's global effects that could be happening, you know, the, the war in Ukraine, or, you know, there's, you know, let's say the pandemic when it happened two years ago. There's so many things that can change both macro level as well as local level that can affect, you know, the kind of new, the loan applicants that I'm getting. You know, the people's salary might change over time. The kind of people that are applying for my loans could change. And when that data changes, the model now that I've trained a few months ago can actually perform in a, in a suboptimal manner, can actually lose in terms of accuracy in the, uh, how it's actually predicting credit scores. I was going to use an example about like some oddball example, but well, it turns out the people that live in New Jersey that drive Chevrolet Novas, vintage Nova, but you mentioned salary. I think that's really important. There was a time when, you know, when the economy goes down and a lot of Wall Street folks are getting smaller and smaller bonuses that yeah. would drive salaries down, which could have an effect. The flip side is more and more people are making, you know, closer and closer to 15 or $20, more people are getting paid more in Vermont here. People, they're offering $25 an hour to drive a bus during the snow season. That affects things. So that's a data point salary, which obviously is very relevant to a loan. Yeah. Now, that means the data itself changes. Yep. Do you then retrain the model? You need to know when to retrain the model. So there's this phenomenon of what we call data drift. So this shift in data is called data drift. And that can actually cause models to drift in performance. So models can lose accuracy. Now, the problem though is, you know, you need to detect when that happens. So you can actually retrain it, or maybe the model is drifting because of problems within your data pipeline. So some of these data shifts can be actual real data shift, like there is a real data shift happening in the environment, but it could also be system problems. You know, you know machine learning is, is a large-scale data infrastructure, and these data pipelines could break, and they might be sending incorrect data, noisy data to your models, and that can also cause the model performance to drift. So you have to figure out what has changed, you know, whether this is a real change or a system error, and then see if you need to retrain the model. Because retraining the model is a costly exercise for most teams, right? You need to spend more, you know, compute hours, you know, people hours to retrain the model and come back with a better model. So this is where, you know, tools like Fiddler can help you to detect model drift, but also help you root cause, you know, what is the underlying problem so that right. you know what needs what needs to be done. So it's interesting you say there's a cost involved in retraining the model. Yeah. Be interesting because I could easily argue the flip side. There's a cost involved if you don't retrain the model and you're giving out bad loans. There's a terminology I'd love for you to explain a little bit. And is it what we've been talking about? Model performance management. Exactly. So now all we have described so far is how do you manage the model performance so that the models that you've deployed are running intact, right? So you know your goal, as you said, is my models are now serving business critical use cases. As you said, if my credit risk model loses performance, then it's going to affect the quality of loans that I approve and disapprove, and it's going to affect my business metrics. Suddenly, if I've approved a bunch of bad loans, then you know my business uh, is going to lose over a period of time. So it's very important to manage the performance of these models while they're running in production, continuously monitoring them, being able to analyze how they're performing, explain predictions, you know, why was this 
particular loan denied? Why was this particular loan accepted? So you can build a, first of all, culture of transparency within your organization. So everyone gets visibility into what's going on with your models, but also be able to make them better over time. As I build my ML dictionary, which I'm going to make millions by publishing, model monitoring versus model performance management. Is model monitoring one subset of MPM? That's right. So MPM, the way we describe it, has four pillars. One is the most important aspect of it is continuous model monitoring. The other one is being able to do explainability of model predictions so that when someone asks you, how is the model doing? You have an answer. Or you yourself you know, want to know to improve the model. Right, So you want to make sure that, let's say, if a model is throwing a whole bunch of false positives, it's a fraud detection model, and suddenly false positives have increased. Why is the model actually throwing a bunch of false positives? What has changed? You know, So you can explain the model for them. Mm-hmm. The third is root cause analytics. When you see a performance degradation issue, let's say you get an alert that the model is drifting. You want to be able to root cause analyze. So as you can see, if it's a data pipeline issue or a real data drift issue, you know, when you need to retrain the model, what do you need to retrain the model? You know, let's say if things have changed from the way the model was trained, like the training data set is now very different from the production data set, what has changed? So, you know, you can build a better model. The fourth pillar is obviously fairness. You know, you want to make sure that the models that are performing in a fair and equitable manner to your customers. Great. I'm going to come back to particular explainability and fairness. But uh, just to finish up my dictionary that I'm building here, I have a feeling if I ask 50 people, I might get 50 different definitions, but I really want yours, Krishna. ML ops, please. Yes. Yeah, so ML ops is this new term that is, uh, that is being developed that sort of describes the, the processes and tools that you need to operationalize machine learning and AI applications in production. So like if you rewind a few years ago, most of the data science and machine learning work was happening in research in a lot of companies. There are obviously the tech companies that were advanced and doing machine learning for a while. You look at the general enterprise, most of the machine learning data science work was most limited to research or at best analytical use cases, which are ad hoc. Now, with the advent of the, the tools that are helping people to operationalize these models, with the advent of availability of large-scale data sets and compute power, now the ML ops as a paradigm started you know, forming. So what it constitutes is being able to you know, train models at large scale, being able to experiment with different types of models, being able to capture all of the data, the feature data, and, and store them and make, make it accessible being able to serve the model at large scale against traffic. For example, a consumer internet website may choose to use machine learning for providing recommendations for their customers, and it it should be able to serve that high throughput, millions of people using the website for recommendations, e-commerce recommendations or news recommendations. And then being able to monitor this model, how is the model performing in production? So doing all of these steps in an operational manner and being able to retrain models and relaunch them and keep them intact for your business. And that this entire area is called MLOps, mm. uh, and you need a set of processes and tools to actually you know, get this right. Excellent. So you talked about data drift and data integrity and how we train models. Let's take that to the next step. And how would then that be used 
And I think I'm moving from the world of objective to subjective to detecting model bias. Is, and bias, I guess, could be errors in the model, but that, I'm, I'm kind of okay. I understand that, but maybe bias is more than that. So talk to me about that, please. Yeah, so bias essentially is a model performance issue, but it is specific in the sense that you're looking for model performance variations across different segments of populations within your data. So let us say, again, going back to the credit scoring example, let's say my model's accuracy is 85% overall, and I'm happy with it. But it may actually, in that sort of 85% accuracy, it may be highly accurate for a certain segment. Maybe it's 95% accurate for a certain segment, and it's 60% accurate for another segment, right? And so what the high-level sort of model metrics hide these type of performance issues that the model might be having on different sub-segments. And when they're related to you know, ethnicities or gender or age or anything that at a human level can be considered potential bias, right? So you know, it surfaces up as like a model bias. You want to see how your model is performing and if it is performing you know, equitably across different segments or you know, if there is any disparate impact that the model might be having across you know, genders or ethnicities. Uh, so there are a whole bunch of metrics that you can look at to understand model performance across these different segments. I wanna to go to an interesting space, which is not ethnicity necessarily. And I don't know if it's, a, if it's an urban legend or whatever, but supposedly they did a study. I have no idea if this is where I got it. If somebody approved three loans in a row, the odds are the fourth one would not be approved. Mm. Now, subjectively, someone has to decide the pattern of in a row or the pattern of you know, judges are more likely to give somebody a better result after lunch, after having yeah, lunch. Yeah, yeah. How do you build that corpus of knowledge into this detection of biases? Because mm. I think we really have gone from objective to what is not subjective, but at the yeah. end of the day, the creation of these mm. measures are are somewhat subjective. Does that make it's sense? A great question, actually. So, I mean, as you just said, right, like, you know, let's say I'm a human underwriter, I've approved three loans in a row, and maybe like the fourth loan, I'm a little bit more strict, or maybe I would sort of deny it because of like my un underlying biases, right? So one of the good things with actually using machine learning is you are not getting into that such human bias issues, right? Because it's the machine that's actually making those predictions. So that's a good thing. But the downside of it is the data that we are feeding this machine is this historical data where a lot of it was done by humans. You know, when you're trying to, you know, train a new uh, loan underwriting model, a lot of your previous historical data may have human biases already captured in that data. And because as a society, we are not yet a perfectly equitable society, what happens is the data that we collect from the society will also be imbalanced. Classic example is the face recognition systems, right? When the first face recognition systems were trained, most of the data was representing a certain ethnicity sure. and certain ethnicities were completely missing in it. And sometimes this can be done unknowingly, right? right. Sometimes it can be done knowingly. But the thing is, these when these data sets then go into the model, the model then becomes biased. So machine learning on its own is not like biased. It's basically dependent on the data. And so because the data itself can be biased, we need to look into that. But the good thing is, as we move more and more towards machine learning, there will be a less chance of human bias, you know, this sort of like 
uh, you know, a subjectivity that can happen in the future. Great. So what I'd like to get to then, and it's interesting as I was doing my research for this podcast, you had a number of really interesting use cases. Four of the five use cases on the site were about explainability. So this is perfect as a natural segue from bias explainability. And whether it's uh, churn detection or governance or underwriting, talk to me uh, what explainability means to you. And let's talk about what Fiddler does to help people understand what's coming out of a model. So before machine learning or AI got widespread, the way we used to build software that would make decisions is highly rule-based systems, right? So you would say that, let's say I'm trying to build a credit scoring system 20 years ago, it would basically be using such certain rules. Let's say if someone's salary is above, let's say $10,000 a month, or their previous debt is like, you know, less than $50,000 a month, you know, I can compose these type of type of rules that can, or formula that can actually give out the, the score, the credit score of a person that is applying for my loan. And it's highly interpretable, right? I can mm-hmm. look at the rule and understand how the rule was made. And as a human, I can look at all the corner cases of it. I can test the rule with a whole bunch of corner cases, when it would approve a loan, when it would deny a loan. Now with machine learning, let's say this rule-based system is being replaced by a machine learning model uh, now, and it's taking these attributes and spitting out a credit score. As a human, I have lost that interpretability, right? How is the model arriving at this credit score? That is the question that explainability systems are trying to solve. They are now bringing back that human understanding capabilities so that you can see this is how the model is coming up with the prediction. And so in the case of Fiddler, the way we approach it is we sort of provide explainability in the context of inputs. So we say that, say someone's credit score is like, you know, 700 or higher, right? Now, the inputs that are actually driving the credit score up are these inputs. Mm -hmm. The inputs that are driving the credit score down are these inputs. This is the impact each of these inputs are having to that model. So this person having $100,000 of salary per annum is having a positive attribution towards their credit score or their previous debt being $100,000 or more is actually having a negative attribution to their credit score. So that's how we help you to understand how these models are working. And then we help you do fiddling, you know, the way we we sort of, you can do counterfactual questions. You can ask, Mm. what if the person had $150,000 of salary and only $50,000 of previous debt? Would their credit score be even higher or lower? And that's how you can reason about the model. So I like how you're looking at, and I I think the acronym is weightings and the different data inputs. Would you have been able to go back some number of years to the original Google face recognition system and say, hey, your data seems to only have this type of faces in it or that not work? You'd only be able to look at eyes and nose and chins or, or whatever way they were looking at for facial recognition. Yeah, I mean, today there are algorithms available that can connect the model problems to training data set problems, ah. right? So they can tell you that in, this is basically explanations by example, where they can essentially explain you that, hey, this particular face is not being recognized or being misclassified, you know, and they can connect back to the training data set and say that you do not have enough representation of this this type of data point in your training data set. I'm thinking a little bit about always a discussion of build versus buy and companies are going to have to decide if they're going to build 
or by models. You are, in my mind, kind of an unbiased third party overseeing things that it sounds like this is not something that anybody should always keep in house, but they should always be looking to someone such as a fiddler to help them understand that better. My next subject is going to be about trust, but it sounds like by being that outsider, you can help them do a better job of understanding and trusting what they have. Is that fair? So the moment you are putting machine learning models in into your business use cases, you know, whether that's credit scoring or, you know, say recommendations or fraud detection or, you know, whatever business use case, you have an obligation to know how those things are working, you know, both for your business, for your organization, for your customers. And without monitoring those models, you're running the risk of them going wrong and actually hurting your business, hurting your, you know, reputation, you know, potentially putting you into a regulatory compliance issue if that's if that's in your industry. What Fiddler helps you is to help you foolproof. It gives you the peace of mind by continuously monitoring those models and giving you these alerts and insights. So you, you know, you can actually uh, fix issues before they become really bad. Like in this case, we are agnostic to the types of models that our customers train and develop, you know, because we are a, a neutral third party. We are essentially a watchdog watching all of your models and looking at how they're performing and helping you detect issues with those models. That's terrific. So I do want to close on trust. And you've got some really interesting discussions on, on your website. And we'll talk about model monitoring, um, particularly fairness and explainable AI. So talk to me a little more about how at the end of the day, the trust will happen between a company and their potential users mm -hmm. or trust within the, within the company and the model. So talk to me about your view of yeah. trust, please. Yeah, absolutely. See, like, you know, three years ago when Apple launched their credit card, uh, it was uh, basically approving loans for or credit card applications automatically, right? And when users applied online, you know, certain users were getting very low credit limits, especially women were getting 10x lower credit limits than men at the time. I remember and, that one well, the spouses, exactly. and they had the exact same credit record. I remember that very well. And there was a very large bank that was supporting the Apple credit card. And when customers complained to that bank, you know, the response that they got from the customer support teams was, oh, we don't know. It's just the algorithm. And one of the users was very angry with this response, started like a big tweet thread, became a big news story, eventually got into a regulatory probe. So what is what happened at the end of the day, right? Essentially, Apple or the underlying bank used certain algorithms, machine learning, or sort of more complex algorithms to you know, predict these credit limits. And more importantly, they did not have the transparency within their organization so that they can answer those questions when customers actually complained about it. They did not probably have monitoring around how the models were performing across different segments so they could catch those issues even up front before mm. they became too bad with those customers. This is essentially the trust, right? So the trust with your customers, trust within your employees, you know, the customer support organization does not know how those algorithms work and they're not in a position to help their own uh, users. So this is basically the trust that we are talking about, right? How do we build that trust? By creating transparency. You know, as humans, we rely on each other. We have, we are, as a species, we are able to scale so successfully because we are able to scale trust. Unlike, you know, say chimpanzees, you know, if you, if you assemble a thousand chimpanzees, there might be a quarrel, right? Or a big fight. But hundreds of thousands of humans can go to a big stadium and watch a football game. 
as humans, we're able to abstract things out. We're able to, because we're able to trust, we're able to scale trust. A billion people can elect a president or a prime minister in a country. So this is a very, very important phenomenon. So for humans, transparency is a very, very important factor to build trust. Same goes with the machine, right? So now if the machine is making decisions, I as a human, how do I trust it? So the way to do that is to build transparency. If you're using machine learning and AI, give that transparency to the people who are building that, people who are consuming that in your business, and then your end users. And that's how you build that trust. You know, context matters. I think this is great. We talked about that example. I think what made the Apple example so horrendous in the eyes of many people was because Apple pushed really hard around privacy and trust and not to editorialize much, but if it was Facebook's credit card, nobody, they would, they would just, it wouldn't be a big deal. And I hadn't thought about, but I like the concept of going to a stadium for a reason. There's a reason there's contextualizing why certain things happen. So that puts trust in a very um, tangible way for people to think about it. So Krishna, I think this was just a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. It was uh, just a pleasure. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Great questions. I enjoyed the interview. Have a nice day.